If you didn't, did everyone get a copy of the outline? If you didn't, raise your hand and we'll pass them out. This is just the introductory material uh, for the Wednesday night class, usually on Sunday, the church eat church, when we have our fellowship, the Sunday evening sermon, I, uh, sermon, I try not to talk too long because I know all of you are about ready to enter into food coma, so uh, <laughs> myself included, so I thought uh, I'd give you this outline and what you don't catch today you can look over when you, when you get home. So as he passes this out, it's clear that, that there in the text that um, Forrest read, uh, that there's some blessings associated in, in reading and studying and keeping the words of the prophecy uh, of Revelation. Uh, just to repeat that, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, when we look at that and you read through the book, there's two things that you notice, that it's from Christ, God gave it to Christ, who gave it to the angel, who signified it to John, and it's about Christ. We're going to learn some things about Christ in, as we read through uh, this, this prophecy, this epistle, and this apocalyptic literature. And so, uh, and, and that comes, I always, when I'm teaching the class at the school or in whatever context, one of the things that I bring up in 2 John 9, you know, John writes, whoever transcribes, transgresseth, and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ, hath not God. And there are those in the religious world says, well, that's the doctrine about Christ. And, of course, the doctrine about Christ is that he's the Son of God. So the religious world says if you believe Christ is the Son of God, then we have fellowship. But it can also mean the doctrine from Christ, which is, of course, the New Testament. It's been revealed. And if you look at it as that way... Uh, then that narrows the line of fellowship. And so uh, Daniel Wallace, who, who is a supposed Greek scholar, uh, says that's a plenary genitive, and it contains the, both thoughts. It's a, a doctrine of, about Christ, a doctrine from Christ. So, and the same um, situation occurs here in Revelation. It's a revelation about Christ, and it's a revelation from Christ. So the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. Uh, you can read there are different thoughts what that means, shortly play, take place. Rain Jackson, who many of you are familiar with, uh, takes the position that that shortly takes place means that when it, once this starts, it will, start, it will con uh, pr tr uh, progress rapidly. And that word can either mean it's at hand or it can, it means that once it starts, it will progress rapidly. The problem is that's not the end of the thought. If you look at the end of verse 3, for the time is near. So when you combine for the time is near with the things that must shortly take place, obviously it had some significance to those in the first century. So that he would send and signify it. I remember David's dad, when, when I first studied Revelation in his class, uh, that he said that some of us are old enough to remember. You remember those things our parents bought us, and there was these little, like, circular wheels, and they had, like, um, um, slides, like, you know, when you had picture slides, and you'd put it in this machine, and, and you'd flip it. And when you flip it, you get a different picture every time. 
And, and Brother Jackie used to describe Revelation as sort of like that. You know, John's given this scene, and then there's a flip, and then there's this other scene, and then there's a flip, and then there's this other scene. And so as we move to Revelation, you'll see these different scenes, these different visions that John had. And the hard part for you and I is when we do that is trying to understand what did it mean to those first century Christians. And that's where the biggest difficulty comes in. Um, notice that he said he would signify it by his angel to his servant John who bore witness two phrases that are going to come up quite a bit in, a bit in Revelation for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. We're going to show about the souls under the altar. They were there for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. They were there because they kept their faith and they suffered physical death because of it who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. As we talked about a few weeks ago when we were talking about Revelation and, and, and we, Revelation chapter 20, we have to understand in the first century not everybody read or had access to written material. And so many times when the saints would gather like we are now, they would read and people would hear it orally. Thus we have in Romans chapter 10, you know, how can I believe except I hear? How can I hear except someone teaches me? And how can, you know, how can that happen without a preacher? Blessed are the, uh, how, is it, how beautiful are the feet of those that preach, uh, preach the gospel of peace. So, and, and at that time, the gospel was an orally given to a large part, or for a large part, um, information. And so... Blessed is he who hears, he who reads, or he who reads and he who hears, and he who keeps the words of this prophecy. And there's a good lesson in that because for ancient Israel, they thought just hearing the word of God, just showing up on Sunday and just listening to the preacher and listening and hearing the songs and, and listening to the word proclaimed, that there was a great blessing in that. And there is. But if we don't take that with us and apply it to our lives, then that's the purpose of, of us gathering together, just not to hear this information, nor was it for the first century Christian. It was to apply it to their life. Blessed is he who reads, who hears, and keeps the words of this prophecy, for, as he said, the time is near. So anything as we read through and we study Revelation on Wednesday night, we're going to have to keep it in that first century context and make some applications to us today. Uh, so, uh, Revelation, uh, as we go down through your notes, is, is Christ's last words to mankind before uh, the final judgment. It completes God. Someone asked if I could speak over the rain. I'm going to try. Um, it completes God's special revelation to man in Genesis. Uh, we're shown the commencement of heaven and earth in Revelation the, the uh, consummation of it. There's a new heavens, a new earth, new Jerusalem. In Genesis, we record, it's recorded the entrance of sin and, and the curse. In Revelation, the end of sin and the curse, a place where there's no more sin, no more sorrow, no more pain. In Revelation, or in Genesis, did I say Genesis? In Genesis, uh, the dawn of Satan and his activities. In Revelation, the doom of Satan and his activities. Revelation chapter 10. Satan's going to be cast into the fiery abyss for eternity. Uh, in Genesis, we see the access to the tree of life is given up. Uh, Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden. They no longer have access to that. 
and Revelation access to the tree of life is once regained. And we read there in Revelation 22, there's the tree of life. In Genesis, death enters, and in Revelation, death exits. There's no more death. Revelation 21, verse 4. In Genesis, sorrow begins, and in Revelation, sorrow ends. There's no sorrow, no pain, no death. Revelation completes God's message to man. When you look at Genesis and you look at Revelation, realize their bookends to this message that God has put over 1,600 years and plus beyond that until the end comes of his plan when once man chose to sin, his plan for redeeming and saving man, when his son's going to come taking vengeance on them that know not Christ and obey not the gospel. And to those who are his, he's going to bring them to a new greater existence without God, with God and with him throughout eternity where there's no sorrow, no pain, no sadness, no fear. So, what type of book is Revelation? We talked a little bit about this a few weeks ago. It's an epistle. It's a letter. John's told to primarily write these to the seven churches of Asia. But in those writings, we're going to see let the, you know, hear the churches hear what the Spirit says. And so there's a universal aspect of it. It's also a prophecy. Hear the words of this prophecy. Uh, in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3, blessed is he who reads, who hears the words of this prophecy and keeps them. Uh, it's also apocalyptic, and we spent quite a bit of time talking about apocalyptic. And so, as I've said before, I'm going to repeat it. In order to understand Revelation, we must understand that it was a letter written to the church encouraging them to remain faithful during a time of great difficulties. In that encouragement, God revealed symbolically that Jesus the Christ still has all authority in heaven and in earth, and that even though it may not be, seem so, seem to be so, he will prevail and be victorious over their oppressor. When was Revelation written? There's primarily two different groups of people. Um, I was talking with um, Hiram Kemp, and he takes, his, takes some classes. I think uh, one of his uh, teachers at... Um, one of the instructors at Freed Hardeman, and Justin Rogers, who teaches Revelation, uh, made the statement in class, there's no modern scholars that take the early date anymore. That almost exclusively among modern scholars, they take the late date position. The early date position takes the position, some of you may be familiar with Foy Wallace, uh, he took that position. And, and, and I can see how a person arrives at that position. Uh, there's some text in there. It talks about the temple and the measuring of the temple. And um, it also, um, and, if the, and if there was, if you take that, what, uh, where it talks about the temple, if you take that literally, obviously it'd have to be pre-80-70. Uh, it's contended that Revelation 17.9, the sixth king there is Nero when it names these kings. Some contend that the number in Revelation chapter 13, that the number 666 uh, refers to Nero, or in order to make it fit, it must be Neron Caesar. Uh, and I like one statement one commentator meant, meant, uh, said, and he says, okay, if we're going to take 666 to refer to Nero, we're taking a, a Jewish way of applying numbers to the scripture using a Greek text and applying it to a Roman ruler. 
And you think about it, here I'm taking a, 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 a Jewish, a, a Hebrew way of applying, it's called, I think it's called Gemaria, applying numbers to the scriptures. I'm going to apply it to Greek, uh, Koine Greek text, and apply it to a Roman ruler. So I think he, in, in a few short words, tells that I need to be very careful before I become dogmatic on who I'm going to make 666. Uh, let's see. Um, those that hold the early date believe that Babylon um, was used to represent Jerusalem, but there's no, there's no writings out there that ever refer to Jerusalem as Babylon. Uh, there's just nothing out there that would give some, that I'm aware of or that others are aware of, uh, that would give some credence to that or some um, um, evidence to that. Uh, the late date, as I said, the consensus among 20th, 21st century scholars is that Revelation was written during the reign of Domitian about 95 AD. What the problem with that is, there's not a lot of secular history about Domitian. And here's the problem. Domitian was so convinced that he, was, he wanted to be called, let me think, and, and, and Anyway, in the English, Lord and God. He wanted to be identified as Lord and God. He expected his subjects to worship him as God, and every year they would have to bring some kind of oblation to him, whether it was some incense or something like that. And he carried it to the extreme that the Roman elite, the Senate and all those, it, it, it became overpowering. And so... Um, eventually he was assassinated because of this extreme position. And it's not that other emperors didn't you know, want to be recognized as God, though it was often saw as something after they died, but he pushed it. He pushed it to the extreme, uh, and some of the things that he did just alienated a bunch of, of, of the Roman elite. So when he was assassinated, I mean, there's very few uh, of... Um, what do they call those things, statues or busts of Domitian, because all those were destroyed, and many of the records were wiped out of the books. So uh, there doesn't, there's just not a lot of secular history about them, that make, which makes it difficult. Uh, the reign of Domitian better harmonizes with the conditions uh, described in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, uh, it talks about the, the uh, trials that were coming upon the whole world, where Nero's persecution was, was regulated primarily to Rome. And Nero's persecution was because he convinced the Romans that the Christians had set Rome on fire. And so they were being persecuted because they were, what's the word for fire starters? Um, Arson, arsonist. I was going to say anarchist, but that didn't sound right. Arsonist. And so that was the reason for that. Where Domitian, under Domitian's reign, and we're going to look at some of the reasons why Christians were, were they were being persecuted because of their religion. And we'll look at a few of those in the outline. Uh, also, the conditions of the congregations in Asia suggest a later date. If they were written about you know, before A.D. 70, we read in, I think it's, um, I think it was Laodicea, uh, talk about them being very rich. Well, shortly in the early 60s or late 50s, Laodicea uh, suffered a great earthquake. 
And the whole city was devastated. So if they're writing this in, in the you know, mid to late 60s, you know, to think that the city had been completely rebuilt back then, that the Lord would say that they were rich, um, doesn't seem to be fit the timeline. And some of the things like Ephesus, you know, if, if it was written in 30 years, we wouldn't expect Ephesus or some of these other congregations to degrade to the point that the Lord talks about in, in those problems, spiritual problems that they were having in such a short time. Uh, typically, we see, you know, you have your first, century, your first uh, generation of Christians, and, and they're very zealous, you know, they're on fire for the Lord. And then you have the second generation that are, are very convinced, maybe not as, as zealous as the first center, uh, generation, but then when you get to the third generation, then things start to, to get a little dicey for some reason. You know, they're not as convinced, third generation sometimes is not as convinced as the second and sometimes the second's not as zealous as the first and willing to make the sacrifices that the first generation was. So anyway, just the age of the congregation suggests a later date. Um, and the, the patristic fathers, those uh, second century, third century Christians, all suggest that it was written during, uh, some of those suggest that it uh, was written during the late date. So for this lesson on Wednesday night, we're going to take the position of the late date. Uh, who wrote Revelation? Obviously, it's a revelation of Jesus, from Jesus, or from God. Uh, but the final link was John. Uh, John identifies him five times in the letter, which is sort of unusual, because if you look at the Gospel of John and you look at the epistles of John, he doesn't identify himself in them. Uh, we'll see what he'll talk about, the one whom the Lord loved, or the one whom Jesus loved. Uh, but here in the Revelation, he identifies himself as John. Uh, to whom was it written? It was primarily to the seven churches of Asia. However, there's a universal aspect to the book to which John referred. Uh, when you look at, at the uh, letters to the various churches, uh, it says, like in, in the letter to the church at Sardis, verse six, chapter 3, verse 6, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So even though there was, you know, a, a letter directly to this, con, con, um, directed to this specifically to this congregation, there was also the universal aspect about it. And as Brother Jackie always used to say, the scriptures aren't written to us, but they're written for us. Uh, just a little chaser rabbit today. We have brethren today that that say that you know when we when we look to Bible and we. Uh, uh, take Bible authority because the Bible infers or implies it and we infer it from what it implies uh, that that's really not authority. Well, here's a, an answer that, that Brother Jackie used to say. Which one of our names is in the Bible unless we have a biblical name? Nowhere in the Bible does it say, Bob Bauer, you know, you have to worship God. Bob Bauer, you have to be baptized. Bob Bauer, you have to give as you've been prospered. Bob Bauer, you know, you must pray, Bob Bauer, whatever it is. It doesn't say that. Our names aren't in the Bible. So how do we know that we must do those things? Because we infer from it, if these people did this to have salvation, therefore the necessary inference is if I do what they did, then I will have salvation too. So the Bible teaches everything to each succeeding generation afterwards by inference. 
My name's not written in there. It's in the Lamb's Book of Life, but it's not in the New Testament. So, um, anyway, uh, the Bible, the Revelation was not written to us, but it was written for us. Why was it given to John? Uh, the purpose of the, revelation, of, of the Revelation was to motivate the first century persecuted Christians to be faithful even to the point of death. Jesus had John write to the church at Smyrna, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. No matter what you and I might face in this life, no matter how difficult, no matter how terrible, no matter how horrific it might be, we must maintain our faith in God. And that's what Revelation was teaching, a time when it was horrible for Christians. Be faithful. Be faithful. Because I'll give you the victor's crown if you are. Um, in doing so, first century Christians were assured that God sees their tears. That God hears their prayers. That victory was assured. Their blood would be avenged. And that Christ lives and reigns forever and forever. And as we go through these visions of John, we're going to see that. God, I know what's going on. I know, God says. I know your works. I know what you're dealing with. And that he hears their prayers. We're going to see where about this incense rising up to God, the prayers of the saints. Also, Christians were being persecuted because Christianity was an illegal religion during the time of Domitian. You could be, as I've said many times, Rome was pretty tolerant in a lot of ways. You could worship whoever you wanted. You could do pretty much what you wanted as long as you didn't cause civil uprisings, as long as you didn't engage in civil disobedience. They were real tolerant of that. But one thing when it came to religion was you didn't proselyte. You didn't try to go out and convert people to, to your religion. You could practice whatever you want, but... Don't try to convince anyone else that they should come to your religion. Well, what's Christianity about? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So that put them on the, the emperor's list. Secondly, uh, Christianity aspired to universality. What do we still teach today? Only one way to God, isn't there? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me, John 14, verse 6. And there's only one church. The church which Jesus built, the church which he purchased with his blood, Acts 20 and verse 28. That's pretty universal. If you're not part, if you don't try to reach God through Christ, and you're not part of the church which he purchased with his blood, you're not with God. That's pretty universal. It's either all or nothing. Also, that Christianity was exclusive. Here's, here's what's required to be in that. It's the only one. Christianity was falsely accused of all manner of evils. What did we do at the morning worship when we passed these things out? What did we do? What did the scripture say? Take, eat this bread, which is my... Take, eat, drink this cup, which is my... What do we call people that eat bodies and drink blood? And that's what they called first century Christians. They called them cannibals because they heard, well, here they are eating the body of Christ. They're drinking the blood of Christ. So therefore, they must be cannibals. And so 
this false rumor was spread and they were accused of horrible things. First century Christians, because they were under persecuted, because they weren't bowing before the emperor, when did they meet? They met in, you can go to Rome and see the catacombs, and often they would meet at night because, hey, if you're a slave or you're a worker, what are you doing during daylight? You're working. So they met at night. Well, there's only two good two things that go on primarily at night. Either you're worshiping God or you're worshiping Satan. You know, like, like the, the old mother says, there ain't nothing good happening out there after 10 o'clock at night. Well, they got a reputation that because Christians expressed this love for their fellow man, that in these things they were engaging in all kinds of immoral acts. The rumors that people didn't know. But if you're against Christianity, there's a seed there that they can build on. You just remember that all lie, a good lie, if there's such thing as a good lie, is going to be based partially on a kernel of truth. So... They were falsely accused of all matters of evil. Christians had many among them who were poor, as well as some who were former outcasts of society. It's hard for us to imagine in the 21st century how this disparity against classes, and, and to the, against especially free and slave, uh, to understand that, that I've read you know, uh, books on that, and a slave was called a vocal tool. In other words, it was like a, a, a slave was like a hoe or a shovel or a pick, only it could talk. So it was a vocal tool is how they were designated by some ancient writers. And so here's a religion that's made up where people who are formerly slaves, Onesimus, a runaway slave, people who are poor. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 there, that not many mighty, not many noble come to Christianity. They think it's foolish. Well, you know, you have a religion here that, that's primarily made up of the common man. The elite are going to say, well, who wants to be part of that? You know, what, what's going on here? Is there some kind of civil disobedience arising? Christians would not compromise and were considered more stubborn than the Jews. And I think that's, you know, when you think God told, said of Israel that they were stiff-necked and hard-hearted people, uh, it says something for us, in the for Christians, in the fact that they wouldn't compromise. They wouldn't do what is wrong. They wouldn't do, they wouldn't, you know, hedge on the truth. They didn't engage in situation ethics or anything like that. If it's right, we'll do it. If it's not right, we won't do it. Uh, the Christians' enthusiasm and zeal were labeled as fanaticism. You know, we say a lot of things about the Mormons, and we say a lot of things about the Jehovah's Witnesses, and, and many of the things that we talk about when we study those religions are true. But one thing that I wish we had and I wish I had was their zeal. Because even though what they believe is contrary to the word of the Bible, they're out there promoting it, and they're out there promoting it to a hostile environment. Because you not know and I know, when we see them coming down the road, what do we do? It's like years ago when, when, when the gypsies used to go through the town I grew up in. Mom came out and gathered up all us boys because she had heard rumors that the gypsies would take kids. And so when we see them coming down the street, we shut our doors, bring our kids in. We don't want to deal with them. 
Well, the first century Christians were zealous. They believed what they believed. And they believed in the necessity of sharing it with others. Christianity conflicted with the temporal interests of many. Imagine, and again, these are reasons why Christians were being persecuted. Imagine, here you are, a first century Christian, and you tell your master that, hey, I've got to go worship God. Or I can't do this because it violates my religion. And, you know, you might be beaten for that. You might even die for that. So Christians conflicted with what people were going on at that time. Imagine here it is the time of year and there's the Saturnarial Festival or, or some of those festivals that ancient Rome had that, that sadly some, you know, as Christianity moved further and further from the New Testament pattern uh, that, that the church incorporated into uh, tried to make religious holidays, and they started out as pagan holidays. Imagine the first century Christian saying, I can't do that. I can't be part of that. You know, I can't, I can't bow down to, to, to Romulus and Remus, to, to Mother Roma. I can't do that, which brings us to the last, that Christians refer, uh, refuse to worship the emperor, where, you know, every year you had to go and you had to offer a pinch of incense uh, to the emperor to show that you were loyal. You recognized him as, as being Lord and God if you were uh, under Domitian. And I can't do that. I can't do that. And so the whole fabric of Christianity put them at odds to first century Rome. Um, some history and methods of interpretation. I'm going to go real quick through here. Uh, the historical method, if you have the gospel advocate commentaries, Brother Hines, um, that's the uh, method he took. And what, what the, those that hold the historical or continual historical method, they see as revelation as a history of, church, of the church uh, up until at least the time of Nero. And so they assign different things to different points in the, in the church's history. And, and they, those that hold this position would see the pope as being, um, I think, either the beast from the sea or the beast from the land. And, and the Roman Catholic Church as being um, the dragon and those type of things. Uh, the preterist method, uh, this fulfillment in the past is shortly after the time of writing. This, and they would see everything as being concluded uh, before AD 70, there's a, a, a group of men in the church today uh, that, that are, uh, they've been identif they identify themselves as the AD 70, and they literally say that Christ came in judgment on the world uh, in AD 70. And so everything that we read in Revelation, him coming in judgment, uh, that that's all, Revelation is completely concluded. Um, the problem with that, very basic, if that's true, why are we still taking the Lord's Supper? Because, in, as was read this morning, um, do this until I come. If he's come, then why are we taking it? Of course, there's more things to it, but that pretty much dispels the argument. The futurist arguments, everything after chapter 3 is all in the future. The futurists, these terms you hear, the rapture, uh, the antichrist, the battle of Armageddon, the great tribulation, 
um, Christ sitting on a, a literal Rome and a literal throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years. That's all part of the futurist interpretation. And when we get into class, I, I might spend a little time showing how that progressed. Anybody here ever hear the Dallas School of Theology? Did you ever hear of Andy Stanley? Uh, did you ever hear of um, John MacArthur? Those names familiar to you? Some of those well-known uh, denominational guys, they're graduates of Dallas Theological Seminary. And Dallas Theological Seminary was started by um, Schofield. Schofield was an attorney who decided he wanted to preach. He didn't have any religious, formal religious education. That doesn't mean thing one way or another. But he started this school, and, and he promoted this dispensationalism, this uh, futurist view. And when he died, they changed the name of his school to Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, Tim Tebow's sister, and we're probably this a little closer to home, Tim Tebow's sister graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary. So you sort of know where they're coming from. So anyway... Uh, that's the futurist. The spiritualist uh, method just looks at everything in Revelation from a spiritual aspect. In other words, there's, there's really no historical aspect to it. It's just a very, you know, just looking at the principles involved here and how they would apply to the first century or how it would apply to us. Very spiritualist. In our study, we're going to take the historical background approach and method. And what we're going to do is we're going to try to look at the first century and how what John, the vision that John was given, how it applied to those first century Christians. And then, of course, we'll make a spiritual application uh, to us today. So it considers the historical setting of the book, Christians under severe persecution. Uh, the book's message is one of hope and comfort to suffering Christians. As those in the first century, as those first century Christians needed to remain faithful, even to the point of death, even today, Christians, you and I, uh, need to remain faithful, even to the point of death uh, in, when we face trials. And this method is usually, we're, usually those that take this approach would be uh, put under the preterist method. Um, the outline, uh, this is the outline that I used. I've adapted it some from uh, Brother Jackie's outline, uh, the message from the glorified Christ, the glorified Christ in his church, the glorified Christ in the throne of God, uh, the glorified Christ's authority over his creation, uh, the glorified Christ opens the sealed book, the warning of the seven trumpets, the servants of God and the devil, the beast from the sea and the beast from the land, allies of the devil, encouragement and exhortation, uh, the seven bowls of God's wrath are poured out, the scarlet woman and the beast and the fall of Babylon and the great, uh, the um, binding and loosing of Satan and the final judgment, the final abode of man, and then the conclusion of the book and of the Bible. So hold on to that outline. We may expand a little bit on it in our class, but right now the plan is we're going to try to do two chapters a night. Uh, we have approximately 11 nights to get through it for a quarter, and uh, we'll move along quickly. Um, once we're done, I can give you my full notes that you can go back and study it again for yourself. One thing that we learned from Revelation, if nothing else, that God hasn't left us or forsaken us. 
If we're faithful to him, he's faithful to us. And that the promise of eternal life is ours if we will but come to him in obedient faith, repenting of our sins, confessing that faith, and being immersed for the forgiveness of our sins, and then to live faithfully the rest of our life. If you're here this afternoon and it's your desire to put on the Lord in baptism, we'd like to help you to do that. And if you are a New Testament Christian, and, and as you look at your life, there's a trial that you're going through, and it's causing you to doubt God, read through the book of Revelation. It's signs and it's difficult, but it's not difficult to figure out that God's there. He knows what you're going through, and he can do something about it. So put your faith and trust in him. If we can help in any way, won't you come as we sing this song of encouragement?